You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. Listen, I got my COVID booster shot on Christmas Eve. I waited in the cold outside a local pharmacy before my family Christmas dinner. I'd show up at 3 a.m. tomorrow for another one if it was necessary. It doesn't matter to me, but it does to some people. That's why you hear scorn directed at talk of a fourth shot or even an annual booster to keep up with the virus. Never mind that we already do that for flu shots. The thought of needing a needle every fall is too much, apparently, for some people to bear. And that's why, compared to the first two doses, Canada's rate of booster uptake is much lower. But what if the booster wasn't a needle? What if it wasn't every six months or even every year? Over the past two years, the advances that we've made in vaccine research and production has been nothing short of amazing. And we're hopefully not done yet. So what does the future really hold for COVID vaccines? What's in the works right now? And could it possibly be nothing like what critics assume it will be? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Dr. Matthew Miller is an associate professor in the Department of Biochemistry and Biomedical Sciences at McMaster University. He is also the co-principal investigator on a study developing a new type of COVID vaccine. Hi, Dr. Miller. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Why don't we get this one out of the way first? Because I think everybody's wondering it right now. Am I going to be getting a COVID booster shot every year for the rest of my life? (laughs) It's a great question. And I think the honest answer is we don't know for sure. What we do know is that SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID, is fundamentally different than influenza virus, for which we do have annual vaccines. Unlike influenza virus, COVID-19 or or SARS-CoV-2 actually tends to evolve much slower. Over the course of the last two years, we've seen very, very rapid evolution of this virus, but that's not so much a function of its intrinsic ability to mutate, but rather a function of the huge number of infections that have been happening globally. Mm. So the ability of a virus to evolve is associated with both its mutation rate, as well as the number of infections it's causing. As SARS-CoV-2 Uh, transitions into becoming an endemic virus, it's very likely that we'll see this evolution slow down. And as a result, we will see the rate of um, new variants that arise slow also. Uh, And so as a result of that, it is possible that we may not need annual vaccines against SARS-CoV-2 going forward, because I think we should anticipate that the the rate of change of the virus will slow down. One outstanding question, though, is how long our current vaccines will be able to protect us, um, even if the virus isn't changing. Right. And also, probably even more importantly, what it is we expect out of our vaccines. And what I mean by that is that 
our strategy for vaccination is going to be intrinsically different depending on whether or not we want our vaccines to completely prevent COVID-19 infections and transmission in the community, or whether what we ultimately really want is for our vaccines to protect people from becoming severely ill. Um, Because that uh, calculation will will profoundly affect what our booster strategy is going forward. So you touched on this um, a minute ago at the beginning of your question, but I'm still curious. Is it simply then the colossal number of infections alone that makes this virus so tricky to vaccinate against? Because it, it does seem to have been inordinately difficult to find a vaccine that will last longer than six months, say. Yeah, that that's a, a very good question. So I think actually the vaccines that were developed initially um, that that were approved in in you know mostly early 2021, our current mRNA vaccines and and some of the viral vectored vaccines like AstraZeneca and Johnson and Johnson, mm-hmm. um, those were really remarkably effective when they were well-matched for the virus that was circulating. What we've seen, of course, is uh, a really rapid evolution of this virus in the form of the emergence of what we're calling variants of concern over the course of, of the past two years or so. Those variants have really challenged the effectiveness of the vaccines, especially Omicron, because their spike protein, which is the the target of current vaccines, has changed a lot relative to the spike protein that's that's present in the vaccines that people are getting today. Um, In addition to that, again, the vaccines, any vaccine will always work better at preventing severe illness in the long term than it will in preventing infection overall. If we feel that we need a vaccine that prevents infection overall, that will necessitate more regular boosting. And the reason for that is that the primary effect of boosting is that it increases the number of antibodies that are circulating in our blood. Mm -hmm. And it's those antibodies that essentially block the virus from infecting us. There are other arms of our immune system that are capable of protecting us after we've been infected to ensure that that infection uh, doesn't result in severe illness. And those branches of the immune response are much more long lasting and don't require as frequent boosting. So this is where we get to some of the work you're doing. I guess my question is, even if the rate of variants of concern showing up slows down, I think it's safe to assume that in the near term, at least until the world is vaccinated, we'll still see them. What kind of options are there to look at if we're trying to find a vaccine that could better protect against variants we haven't encountered yet? Great question. It it is absolutely the case that the continued emergence of variants is inevitable in the context of SARS-CoV-2. The rate at which they emerge might change, but they will certainly continue to emerge. Um, and so we we have essentially two main options in, in broad strokes in terms of 
uh, how we think about vaccines going forward. One option is that we borrow the strategy that we've used historically for influenza virus, where we update the antigen, in this case, spike in our vaccines, so that it matches uh, the variants that continue to emerge going forward. That's the annual booster shot uh, scenario. Exactly. That's the annual booster shot scenario. And that scenario has some fairly significant limitations, the most serious of which is that we're in a position where we're constantly chasing the virus. Essentially, the virus is always one step ahead of us. If what we try and do is just continually update our vaccine to go after the virus, Mm -hmm. I can give you an example of why that could be really problematic. So when the Delta variant emerged, a lot of the major vaccine manufacturers pivoted to update their vaccine so that it would contain the spike protein from the Delta variant. However, in very close proximity to Delta, we then had this huge wave of infections caused by Omicron. Right. That wave happened so quickly that manufacturers would never have been able to produce, test, and distribute their Delta vaccine. So by the time they made a Delta vaccine, we would already have a different virus present, which would reduce the effectiveness of that vaccine. That happens on occasion with seasonal flu vaccines as well. With seasonal flu vaccines, um, the WHO convenes a meeting, usually in, in about February of every year, to decide on the strains that will be included in the upcoming season's vaccine. But there's a leg time of sort of six to eight months between that recommendation being made and the vaccines being ready. And sometimes what happens is that in that six to eight month window, the virus changes so that the vaccine is no longer a good match. And that severely reduces the effectiveness of the vaccine. So in order to get away from this problem of constantly chasing the virus, I think what what we and, and many others around the world would like to do is to develop a vaccine that provides broader protection, including protection against variants which have yet to arise. And thankfully, over the course of the last two years, we've learned a lot about how our immune system responds to SARS-CoV-2 and other coronaviruses. Um, And there are reasonable strategies now that we can use to get ahead of the virus. The most obvious of which is to focus vaccines on parts of the virus that are highly conserved among coronaviruses generally. What does that mean, highly conserved? Yeah, so um, highly conserved antigens are pieces of the virus that are the same amongst many of of its members. In terms of COVID-19, the sort of narrowest definition um, that we would think of when we're when we're considering highly conserved antigens are proteins, for example, that are the same in all variants. But we can actually extend that further into thinking about proteins or pieces of proteins that are the same amongst 
not only all variants of SARS-CoV-2, but also other members of the coronavirus family, including, for example, seasonal coronaviruses, which have been around and causing cold-like infections in humans for at least decades, as well as um, other coronaviruses that only exist uh, in animals right now, but may be a risk for causing future pandemics. So tell me a little bit about how your approach, uh, the work you're doing, seeks to accomplish that and also just how different it is from uh, what our listeners might imagine as a typical vaccine. So the approach we've taken to generate a vaccine um, that's capable of protecting us against all variants of SARS-CoV-2, as well as possibly all coronaviruses more generally, is to expand the number of pieces of the virus included in our vaccine. All current vaccines um, that are approved in North America right now are delivered by injection, and they teach our immune system to respond against one protein from this virus, the spike protein. That's the protein that the virus uses to attach to our cells and then get into them to cause infections. The problem with that approach is that the virus has a really easy time mutating the spike protein. Right. So what we've done in our vaccine is we've included the spike protein, but we've also included two other pieces of the virus called the nucleoprotein and the polymerase. These are proteins um, that the virus absolutely needs in order to cause infections, but it doesn't mutate those proteins nearly as much as it mutates spike. So those proteins look the same ostensibly in all of the current variants. And importantly, it also they also look the same in coronaviruses that circulate in other animals like bats, for example, and may, like SARS-CoV-2, have the potential of causing pandemics someday in the future. The other really uh, innovative aspect of our vaccine is that as opposed to being delivered by injection, our vaccine is inhaled. And if you think about it, it's kind of intuitive that for pathogens or viruses that infect our lungs, you would want to generate a strong immune response in the lungs themselves. Um, Our propensity to deliver vaccines by injection is really kind of a historical carryover from how some of the first vaccines were, were delivered. When we inject vaccines, those injected vaccines do a really good job at making um, antibodies that distribute throughout our bodies, but they don't do a good job of generating immune responses specifically in our lungs, which is, which is where we encounter the virus and become infected. So to overcome that limitation, we've designed a vaccine which is inhaled. And the benefit of inhalation is that we generate a much, much stronger immune response in the lung that's capable of much broader protection against 
other types of coronaviruses and other variants of SARS-CoV-2 than we can achieve through injection. And as an added benefit, not only does the inhaled vaccine generate strong immunity in the lungs, it also generates very strong immunity throughout the body as well. Really quick question for people trying to picture this. When you say it's inhaled, how is it done? Like with a, with a puffer, with a tube? How? Yeah, it, it, it's, it looks a lot like a puffer or um, some people will know uh, a device called a nebulizer, which mm-hmm. uh, people like asthmatics use as an example to um, inhale drugs into their lungs. So essentially, the individual just uh, puts their mouth on a little mouthpiece. It almost looks like um, the, the mouthpiece of uh, a brass instrument, for example. It's made of plastic. And then the vaccine is aerosolized into a mist and the user just breathes naturally and that mist gets deposited into their lungs. So another benefit of, of the aerosolized delivery method um, is that there's, there's no needle needed. And so for, for people who have uh, needle phobias, for example, this is also a really attractive option. Where are you guys at right now in terms of your research? What have you seen so far and and how far along is the process? We've currently completed our preclinical studies demonstrating that the vaccine is capable of protecting against all of the SARS-CoV-2 variants of concern that have emerged to date. And uh, as of October of last year, we received approval from Health Canada to initiate phase one clinical trials. Those phase one clinical trials are now underway uh, at McMaster University. And we've uh, we've already vaccinated a handful of our first participants with this vaccine. Um, In phase one trials, what we're primarily concerned with is, of course, ensuring that the vaccine is safe. But at the same time, we'll also be monitoring the immune response that the vaccine induces in humans to ensure that um, the immune responses we're seeing are consistent with the immune responses that we saw the vaccine elicit in our preclinical models. Is this vaccine intended solely as a booster shot or would we ever see a primary series vaccines taken through aerosol? In our preclinical studies, we were able to demonstrate that a single dose of this vaccine in unimmunized animals provides complete protection. So it is conceivable that this could be used as a primary series. However, in our clinical trial that's currently ongoing, the vaccine is being tested as a booster. And the reason for that is is very simply because the vast majority of individuals who would receive this vaccine in the future will have either already received one of the first generation COVID-19 vaccines or may have already been infected. So what happens now? Obviously, you're looking for uh, phase one results in, in the coming months. But what are you watching, I guess, not just in your own work, but in but in work on COVID vaccines in general? As you mentioned, we've learned so much over the last year or two that we had no idea about before. Like, what's next? What excites you? 
Well, we're in terms of our own work, we're really excited to um, begin gathering the results from our phase one study. Uh, so far, we've seen no safety issues, and we're in the process of uh, doing the immunological evaluations of the response that the vaccine elicits in participants. We should have a, a pretty good handle on that by this summer. And so uh, we're very focused right now on preparing for phase two and phase two, three trials uh, in the future to ensure that we can continue to rapidly advance the the development of this vaccine and and hopefully have it available uh, as quickly as possible. When you say as quickly as possible, what's the best case scenario? I'm just curious. Well, I think um, given given what we've observed with these first generation uh, COVID-19 vaccines, uh, I, I think that the sort of accelerated pandemic development pipeline is realistic, Where, whereas normally it might take, you know, sometimes up to a decade to move from preclinical studies to vaccine approval. Right now, because there is so much appreciation of the desperate need for these types of vaccines, there is a lot more interest from governments and pharmaceutical companies uh, who are willing to make the major investments that are required to move vaccines through these very costly um, phases of of clinical evaluation, especially the phase two and three clinical trials. So I think uh, following that that paradigm, it would be reasonable to think that uh, phase phase two slash three studies could be completed over the course of maybe the next 18 to 24 months. And at that point, um, seek approval from regulators uh, so that the vaccine could be available to the public. Last question, and just a quick one. I think it feels to most of us like ever since this virus emerged, we've been playing catch up with it. Um, whether it's through your work or the other work that's being done on vaccines, I guess what I'm curious about is just, will there come a time when we're not chasing it and and we're ahead of the game? I'm really hopeful that there will be. Um, there's been massive amounts of interest and investment from major international organizations into developing uh, what, what many are calling pan-coronavirus or pan sarbecovirus vaccines. Sarbecoviruses are just sort of the the, the larger family that that coronaviruses belong to, and so uh, I am hopeful that that in the course of the past two years we've learned some really important things about the immune response against this virus and what aspects of our immune response are capable of protecting us. And now. Uh, like our group, there are several other groups around the world who are working really diligently to develop vaccine strategies that get us out in front of of this virus so that one, we're not constantly changing it. And two, so that we're much better prepared and much safer from the possible emergence of similar viruses that might cause pandemics in the future. Dr. Milley, thank you so much for this. Always good to get in a dose of COVID optimism. Much appreciated. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. It's, it was my pleasure. Dr. Matthew Miller of McMaster University. 
That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can find all of our episodes there, including yesterday's, hosted by our producer, Joe Fish, who stepped in when we needed him and did an amazing job. You can talk to us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN, and you can write to us. We've been getting lots of your letters, and we are super grateful for all your suggestions for new episodes. The Big Story is available in every single podcast player you could possibly imagine, and in all your smart speakers, if you ask them to play The Big Story podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.